So if you could help us out, why don't we start with you telling us where you fall in line in the realm of the TCU universe? What do you do? My name is Dr. Brian Dixon. I'm a psychiatrist uh, over at the new TCU and UNT HSC School of Medicine, which is a big mouthful, but uh, I get to work with uh, teaching medical students in their first year and then working with their clinical rotations their second and third and fourth years. What form does healing take? in the classroom? Healing is a huge concept. Um, as a physician, my role is always to first do no harm. So my, my job is to not make a situation worse. Um, so if I go into any situation, whether that's teaching, whether that's um, uh, in the clinical setting, my, my first job is to you know um, stop the bleeding, make, make sure things aren't worse, uh, and then uh, start the path towards uh, feeling better. So uh, healing can mean any number of things for a psychiatrist, especially a Black psychiatrist. Uh, healing begins once you figure out who you're working with. And one of the hard parts that we all have, especially at TCU and especially in Fort Worth, is all the black people have different traumas. And so we can't use one approach to heal all of our trauma because it's just so varied and so different. And so we need to take the time to, to get to know the individual traumas in order to, to be effective. Dr. Dixon, if you could, how does generational trauma factor into your work? My definition of trauma is anything that happens to you that's beyond your control that fundamentally changes your understanding of the world. And so when you use that definition, um, uh, quite a bit more can be traumatized. And so like, um, so when it comes to black folks, when we apply for jobs and we have the pedigrees to get said jobs or to get said tenure or to uh, get said promotion, but we don't get it, that's a trauma because it's beyond our control and it fundamentally changes our view of the world. So our view of the world, if you work hard enough uh, and you put in the effort, then you get the reward, right? Because that's what we've been told since forever. And that is, that's a lie. It is just an absolute lie. Um, you can be as pedigreed as you want to be. Uh, I laugh because I basically did three residencies in one uh, and went to uh, Baylor for undergrad, uh, predominantly white institution and paid a whole bunch of money for that. And then went to a a predominantly white institution and paid a whole bunch of money for that. And then I come out and I, I work my butt off and uh, the first job I got out of residency, I was making $20,000 less than my white female counterpart. And, uh, and that is a trauma. Um, and that if I'm not careful, then my trauma, I can pass on to other people. So if I run around being ticked off all the time and talking about how bad white people are, uh, then I can create more trauma uh, because people will start to go, well, you know, I shouldn't trust white folks. One thing I heard a lot growing up, you know, watching my mom and dad at their jobs, uh, something that I just kind of hear constantly over and over and over again, but to see it play out, having to work twice as hard to get half 
as it pertains to how pervasive trauma really is. Um, I think a lot of times with Black people, we are sometimes overly uh, qualified for, for positions, but we still have to come, kind of find ourselves working, working, working at, at a high level to the point where, you know, our peers, our white peers aren't working at that same type of level and they don't understand the amount of uh, emotional strain or pressures that we put under it. And still somehow um, through, through the grace and, and the magic of uh, blackness, black people still find a way to produce and be great. Um, so if you could, you know, e even if, you know, the end result is, is a, of a good product, um, but just that, that saying and, and how that just rings bells in the black community of you have to work twice as hard to get half. That's a coping um, skill. It's a it's, it is it is a black people defense mechanism to deal with uh, a trauma and to deal with something that you don't have any control over. It's not the healthiest. Like I, I do appreciate it because it means that you have to get off your butt and work because you should be working anyway. Because the human condition, uh, uh, as humans, we take value in the things that we do. Um, and I think that everybody should have some form of a job because it, it brings meaning and purpose. Uh, but the problem is we overdo it. And so literally, as I, as we're having this conversation, I have, you know, three different jobs. That mantra, if you're not careful, can lead to burnout um, and lead to increased stress hormones. And when you have increased stress hormones, um, it means that your blood pressure goes up. It means that you don't burn your um, sugar and carbohydrates correctly, put your risk for diabetes and stroke and overeating and not sleeping. So so yeah, it's a, that, that saying is a double-edged sword. Wait, you're literally suggesting that racism can kill you? Yes, racism can literally kill you. If you believe in the oxidative stress philosophy, so essentially what happens anytime you're burning through carbohydrates or you're burning fats to make carbohydrates so that you can um, use that for energy in your body, you get extra stuff that's left over. And we call those free radicals. Um, and if you have too many free radicals in your body, it can damage your DNA. Well, the ends of your DNA, called your telomeres, um, are responsible for aging. So if you damage the ends, then you age faster. Um, and uh, there is some research that is suggesting that some of that can actually be passed down to your kid. So yes, it can kill you and it will kill you. And so all the more reason why we need stuff like the uh, Racing Reconciliation Initiatives to start talking about this stuff. What does healing look like on a very macro level? It's creepy as it sounds that I think the only way that we can get macro level change is for every white person to have a black friend and, uh, and a kind of a black woke friend. And so the reason why I say that, so, and y'all, I struggle with this. I've had, I have tons of white friends because I, I, again, I went to predominantly white institutions all my life. And, um, and I hear that a lot. They will literally look at me and they're very well-meaning and wonderful. And they'll go, why are, why are people mad now? Um, I didn't do anything. So why should I be punished? The only way that I can respond is to make it personal. And I look at them and I say, here, let me show you a personal example of how um, intergenerational trauma works. Let me show you how um, uh, uh, intergenerational economic disparity works. I worked at a job. I got paid $20,000 less. Hey, when I started my private practice, making over $200,000 a year, um, and I couldn't find a bank to give me a loan, even though I'm a good credit risk for a, an actual business. When I share stories like that, 
the my white friends go okay so i see i see the actual tangible effects and even if they don't change their their big behavior they now know it affects a black person that they know so yes the answer is we need more we need, maybe start a program the black friend program right where every white person has a black friend that can and they can see the world as we see it and then they start to you know understand a little bit better any words of advice for our listeners I always go back to the human element. Um, and number one, you are a terrible therapist for yourself. So every person is a terrible therapist for themselves because you're, it's really tough to be objective, to be able to, to have insight into what you're doing. And so uh, for every person, um, you need a therapist and especially for black folks. Um, every black person should really have a therapist to help process just living but then the added stress uh, and the added trauma that they've been through. So that's number one. Most people are really, really hard on themselves. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten, I read from some random book, which is uh, progress is beating yourself up a little less every day. And so uh, we as Black people, we beat ourselves up for what we've been through, but also not being good enough. And you are enough. You're absolutely enough. Um, and I, I love the mantra of the, uh, the NAP ministry, which is rest as resistance. So in other words, get your sleep, uh, take care of yourself. And a lot of this other, um, a lot of the social justice work will just fall into place when you're rested and, you're, and you're, you've treated your trauma and your relationships will get better. Um, doing that is the most important keystone to uh, racial reconciliation because you cannot make good arguments and you cannot build bridges when you're tired and worn out. So, um, so that would be my suggestion is yes, get your rest um, and, uh, and take care of yourself and, and just don't beat yourself up so much. Um, you know, you're you're a, a wonderful uh, being made of stars. So uh, give yourself a break. So we have our doc talk today. We have uh, the wonderful Dr. Galay um, here with us. If you want to just uh, give a quick bio, who you are, how long you've been at TCU, and then I'll let you have the floor in your doc talk. All right. Uh, I'm an historian and I'm a member of the Department of History here. I've been here, this is my ninth year. And um, I study slavery and both African-American, Native American history. And that's me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so the doc, document that you uh, brought to the table today, um, I'll let you go ahead and jump right in it. Okay, thanks. Um, as an historian, uh, I've been charged with looking at the earliest period of TCU's founding and really the foundation uh, beforehand as well, and uh, specifically the relationship of TCU to slavery and the Confederacy. And to do so as an historian, um, from the start, I was looking for context for understanding the establishment of the university here in North Texas uh, and the people behind the establishment. And so I started reading um, a good bit of Texas history and especially some recent material. In fact, books are just coming out this year. I was able to get a hold of some of those manuscripts. And I was struck by the history of violence mm -hmm. in Texas. And especially 
in North Texas, but really as part of Texas going, at least going back into the 16th, 17th, 18th, and into the 19th century. Hmm. And so I, I was wondering, what does establishing a university have to do with violence hmm. that's taking place? Uh, just to give you a few examples of the kinds of violence I mean, um, this was a major place for the slave trade of both Native Americans and African Americans. And there was a big post out by Waco, Texas, hmm. where Native peoples were brought to be enslaved and African Americans who were captured from slaveholders down in the Houston area and East Texas were brought up here for sale to people wanting to own slaves up here. So that kind of struck me a bit. And so I started looking more of the, that kind of violence and of which there was a great deal here, especially with the founding of the Texas Republic, uh, the, the violence was just increased. And as I started focusing in more on these counties here, I came across during the Civil War, a massacre of 41 civilians. And it turns out this was a massacre of civilians by civilians, the largest in United States history. Wow. And I thought, oh, this is the context that the founders lived in. And the violence extended through many of the counties uh, in this area. In fact, it came into Tarrant County right into Fort Worth because there was vengeance for the violence. And it was basically between Unionists and Confederates. In mm. this area during the Civil War, there were no battles, but there were troops uh, stationed in the area. But most of the men who were raised here went off towards the east where there was um, where there was more violence between troops. Right. But here the civilians were fighting one another. <laughs> and that's, that, this was a place of lawlessness. Hmm. And so I brought a document from the trial of Henry Fields, just one of those individuals who because of his alleged unionist sentiments hmm. was tried by a court that had no authority to try him. Hmm. Uh, which he said he was innocent of any crime. And then later, as he's going to be hung, he said, oh, well, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I did commit these crimes. But it turns out that even the, these documents about what took place here, they may not be full of truth as it is. Right. And so they have to be taken with um, many grains of salt since they even broke people out of the jail, the mob did, that were declared innocent by the fake court. Hmm. And people got hung, they got shot. Wow. So I brought this document to give a little context because when I think about after the war with Randolph and Addison and their father, who's also interested in starting um, educational institutions here in, in North Texas. And I think about what's the connection between the violence of this area and those institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, and on one level, it seems very clear to me that education in general was to settle a place down. Right. 
And, you know, and, and briefly, I'd like to just extend that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the, uh, the Clark's father was, of course, very interested in education and extending literacy. But so too was a, two of the trustees of the university. One was a Confederate major and the other was his wife. This was the first female trustee of the university, and they worked closely with the Clarks on the university. Mm -hmm. They were for many years associated with it, and you see their name around campus. Um, his name was Jarvis, and her name was Van Zant. And you know, these are Van Zant's one of the oldest names in Fort Worth. Right. So here he is. He was a Confederate major. He was president of the trustees. And he and his wife donated almost 500 acres to start Jarvis Christian Institute, which is an historic uh, black college university that is still open today. Wow, wow. So my context here of the violence and starting these institutions leads me to wonder, why would a Confederate general, excuse me, major and his wife who are both interested, we know, in education. Why are they starting this free? Also, why they, while they're working with TCU, they're also donating all this land for this free, you know, historic free black um, Christian college. And, you know, I think it comes back to this drive of, of many people in this time period to settle a place down, mm -hmm. to try to eliminate violence, in their terms, they would have said to civilize a place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what makes them unusual is in the Jarvis and the Van Zandt case is that it's for African-Americans. Mm. Um, but even with the Clarks, it's fascinating that first of all, that they had female students here, that mm. this was for male and females. And, but this also carried on into the next generation with Rand, uh, Randolph Jr., who worked to bring public bilingual education to this area wow. to help out the Spanish speakers who weren't learning in English. And so, so early, they're already thinking about, well, then we need to have people who can teach in Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was also interested in that next generation for public education for African Americans as well. So, this kind of context just complicates, you know, trying to analyze what's going on. It doesn't say necessarily what people feel about one another, right. but it does tell you what they think will lead to a um, calm, orderly society, and that's education, mm. and to spread it as widely as you can. Uh, you know, and one last thing about the violence, if, if we got a moment, yeah, yeah. is... Um, the state of Texas, a lot of people don't know this, but we had a graduate student here do a dissertation on gun control. Mm -hmm. And she showed that the state of Texas was the first state to systematically create gun control and weapons control. Wow. And she argues too, that it's in the same period that TCU is being founded. And the purpose she says is because you have all these freed people, the former enslaved, mm -hmm. it's to keep guns out of their hands and to keep guns out of the hands of poor whites. It's a way to try to 
calm society down. Wow. To get rid of the guns. You know, a lot of Texans don't want to hear that today, you uh, know. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But systematic uh, gun control legislation was born in Texas. And what she also shows, uh, Brendan Revis is her name, and um, she also shows that the Supreme Court supported Texas in doing this because people complained about owning guns and the Supreme Court supported this system. And it's really not until the civil rights movement in 1865 when Texans begin to push to get rid of those gun control laws. Um, and the connection there is that because a lot of white people were now fearing as African-Americans were going to be by law equal <laughs> and protected. Right. And they, people wanted to have their guns. They were afraid. They were afraid of African-Americans asserting themselves. Um, so this kind of context is just fascinating. And oh, let me just add in, if you want to see this document and many more, there's a book, uh, The Great Hanging, Gainesville. Uh, and it's by this collection. And he, he's also written a book about The Great Hanging, a whole book. Uh, he teaches up at University of North Texas, I believe. Uh, and this book, these books are readily available. So just thought I'd introduce that. No, that, that was an amazing uh, Doc Talk segment. Um, it, I guess it goes to show that, you know, as we're looking at history, it's not all black and white, that there is a lot, a lot of gray area in which it is hard to kind of interpret uh, the intentions behind certain people's actions. Yeah. Wow, that, that was great. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Galay, for all of the interesting insight. Uh, that will conclude our Doc Talk intermission session. Dr. Wood, would you mind just uh, for the record stating your name and also your positionality within the TCU universe? Yes, uh, Dr. Eric Wood is my name. I am a licensed psychologist and also the director of the Student Counseling Center here at TCU. I've been here about 13 years. I did leave for one year and then came back, but that's what I did. What have been your experiences in negotiating trauma um, on, on a daily basis? What, what, what is that like for you? Um, <laughs> it's uh, multi-layered, I would say. Um, for one, you know, especially with individuals and students and, you know, especially with the recent events, we've been doing a lot with faculty and staff and really trying to educate them about what their experience is, like have that conceptualization that it is trauma. Because what we found is a lot of people are having trauma reactions, but don't know how to articulate it or put a name for that. And they're coming, they're presenting like, why am I feeling this way? Or why am I acting that way? And really educating them like that is actually a trauma response. So that is kind of new to our field because a lot of times, especially with counseling, we're used to people coming to us like, here's my symptoms, this is what I want. Um, we're seeing a lot more people coming with ambivalence, like I'm feeling this, but I don't know how to articulate. And we're spending a lot of work of putting on the name of what that pain is um, and doing a lot of education. So that's like the first layer has been different. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of the healing is like, how do you navigate?
navigate, you know, the reactions. And as a caregiver, like I've been traumatized too, you know, so, you know, I'm traumatized to helping as a caregiver. So you're balancing your own healing, promoting healing with other people, but doing a lot of education about, you know, helping people articulate their pain. That's interesting. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, one question that uh, I asked uh, Dr. Dixon last night, uh, when someone inflicts trauma on another person, uh, what does healing look like for them? Because I, I would assume that once you have inflicted some type of pain on someone else, that's a good indicator that you are also dealing with some type of pain. Yes. Um, so, so what does that look like when mm -hmm. you as the aggressor also have to heal? If we become subject to trauma, we don't deal with it, we're more likely to have behaviors that can be traumatizing for other people um, and then that kind of leads to other trauma because then you got to deal with either the regret or the remorse or the shame of what you did to someone else um, i think the first step of part in that is again without being defensive without rationalizing it it's just being open and be like that is what happened that's what i did taking that responsibility and said that is kind of the you know because if you don't and you rationalize it or even deny the impact of it you kind of maintain that same cycle, you know, you're not really calling it what it is. It was just basically your behavior. Yeah, it might have been influenced by trauma, but you're the reason why it happened. Um, so when people start giving justifications, then you start seeing there's other reasons why it happened. You don't take responsibility for it, then it just kind of keeps spiraling. So I think, I mean, we have people to come in and the first really step is can you acknowledge what happened? Like, can you fully acknowledge what your role was and that you did this and take responsibility, not just for the action, but for the consequences of the actions? You know, denial is not just denying the wrongdoing. You can also deny the consequences, but no, you got to really fully acknowledge it. And then once you can do that, then the self-empathy and the self-understanding comes into play. But if you can't self-acknowledge what you did, then you kind of rob yourself of kind of dealing with empathy of why you did it or even kind of forgiving yourself. Let's shift specifically to TCU. What are some of the efforts you've undertaken to help those who have been hurt, um, you know, in terms of understanding this idea of acknowledgement and, and pushing uh, community members towards healing? Um, again, because, you know, we have different perspectives on the camp and they all come to counseling center, especially from students. But I mean, one of them, like I said, is, you know, trying to give a name to what people are, are experiencing. And so we've done a lot of work in terms of, you know, we have this training and it's an awareness training about culture-based trauma. And it's just the idea of what is culture-based trauma and the whole outcome of that training is you want people to be aware of that concept. We're developing another training about actually workshops about how to actually give trauma-informed responses. But the first one was just the awareness and that I think really opened the eyes to a lot of people to interject that word trauma as like what's going on not just at TC but the global community but definitely on our campus so I think that has been helpful to help people to articulate it because again once you know this is maybe what's going on we really want to promote people okay you know how do you deal with that like how do you heal from that as you say because if you're trying to do it by yourself and staying in that shell the cycle continues but this might be a time to reach out and help seeking this might be a time for the community so our first step was actually, again, a lot of education about what we know about trauma, what we expect the trauma responses to be to promote that awareness. And obviously from the counseling center with students, we've done a lot of counseling. <laughs> we were last year, our numbers were really high and a lot of students really resonated with the idea of what they were experiencing was actually kind of trauma, um, even culture-based trauma with all the national spotlight on racial tensions and things like that. 
what are some practical tips mm -hmm. for those out there in the listening audience to quote unquote, take their medicine? Because what you're saying resonates with me in this idea that there is a stigma. I mean, you know, let's face it, there's a stigma. We're still battling it as far as how to treat mental health seriously and, and trauma, acknowledging it, diagnosing it. And so over the years, I would like to say I've become better in talking to people close to me mm -hmm. about, you know, as opposed to, you know, I, I got to, you know, I'm East Coast, you know what I'm saying? Philly, you know, so, you know, we don't keep it all in, you know, I'm just going to maintain, you know, my man, you're from Virginia, similar situation, like, I got it, I got it, I don't got it, right? You know, yeah. I'm, talking about the, I'm talking about the break, you know. So what are some practical tips on how you get people to take their medicine? How do we fight the stigma in a practical, meaningful way if they're not actually seeking people like you out? Yeah, I mean, one, I would say, everyone just be real. I mean, the things that are going on and, you know, right now in 2020 are so big and, like I said, so unprecedented. I don't think anyone can claim that they can cope all by themselves, you know, have everything that there's too much going on, whether it be economic, politically, socially, there's just too much. So if anyone says they have it all together, no, I mean, we all suck. So I think, you know, if we're leaders in the community or if we're trying to be advocates, I think we just need to be real that we're all struggling. Like I told a lot of, you know, my clients and people, faculty staff, this was the hardest personal year for me ever, you know? And I think just being really open and honest about that and just kind of make it, you know, applicable that we're all in this together and we're all struggling, you know? And so I think that message needs to be out there. Like you're not strong enough for all this that's going on. No one is. Um, and two, if you do seek help, I always tell people, especially students of color, if you, you know, don't be afraid to ask, you know, your provider, you know, to acknowledge like, hey, I'm African-American you're not, you know, you know, how do you feel about that, you know, coming up, I mean, as psychologists and counselor, any good counselor is trained for those conversations, you know, um, and kind of like, what's the comfort level of that, you know, if you want to talk about things related to a culture, does your therapist relate to that culture, have training in that culture, or, you know, bring that up, you know, because you have the right to shop for your providers, you know, and it may not be a good fit, so maybe you need to go someplace else, um, so a lot of times, if you go to one, and it's not a good fit, don't give up, there's others out there, and seeking referrals, so I think the first step is just being real about what's going on, and then if you do ask for help, bring it up, if you're concerned about being viewed because of the culture, or the history of psychology, and what theory, and stuff like that, bring that up, and sessions for sure. Do you have anything else that you might want to add in regards to uh, therapy or the culture of trauma, the, the culture of trauma responses, or, or Black people in general in regards to therapy? You know, the floor is yours or, you know, any closing mm -hmm. thoughts. I mean, I just think that, you know, I always told, you know, if there's a spotlight on a certain issue, no matter how the spotlight got there, good or bad, there is an opportunity and a challenge of how you want to use that spotlight, you know? And right now there is a spotlight on trauma. There is a spotlight on race relations. Um, no matter how you got there, I think there's always an opportunity for healing. So if there's a spotlight on trauma, there's also an open door for healing. And so just really want to encourage people to take the most of that opportunity. Um, and whether they be using the resources, um, same thing with institutional, if there's a spotlight on race relationship, there's a spotlight and a lot of opportunity that come along with that. 
um, no matter how you got there. So just really take advantage of that as well and be very productive about it. And so, you know, how people are dealing with their own reactions or institutionals is really actually, are you making the most of the spotlight, you know, in terms of bettering yourself, bettering the institution? Um, that's always been my message. And so, especially on the counseling center for the students, we're here. Um, if any faculty and staff are listening to this, definitely encourage them to pursue their own journey of healing. Um, and if you want Pacific therapists, especially if anyone's out there is like, are there Pacific therapists who specialize in cultures? We know them in the community. So if any faculty staff want referrals, I can give you that. Um, just please kind of make the most of the opportunity. I cannot promise what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have. We're about to reconcile, 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 re